It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Money only exists if two or more people believe it exists. It's a quote from a man named Daniel Suelo, who is the subject of a book that I read probably about seven or eight years ago. The book is called The Man Who Quit Money. In the year 2000, this man named Daniel Suelo left his life savings, $30, (laughs) in a phone booth. And since then, there's a few updates to this, but for the most part, since then, going on 21 years now, he has lived without money and a newfound sense of freedom and security. And this book is an examination into how he learned to live sanely and happily without earning, receiving, or spending a single American cent. He doesn't pay taxes. He doesn't accept food stamps. He doesn't get on welfare programs. For most of the 21 years since the year 2000, he has lived in caves in the Utah Canyonlands and Highlands. He has foraged for wild foods. He has done what we call dumpster diving, and he doesn't have an ID. Yet, in this book, he manages to amply fulfill his basic human needs of shelter and food and warmth, but also the universal desires for companionship and purpose and spiritual engagement. And it's an interesting book, Whitney. I was this morning just kind of meditating, not kind of, I was meditating. There's no kind of meditating. You either are or you aren't. (laughs) It's like being a little bit pregnant. You are or you aren't. You're meditating or you're not. And this book and Daniel's story came into my mind. And I hadn't thought about him since I read this book years ago. And I pulled up a really interesting interview from the website becomingminimalist.com, which is an interview with Daniel, and a very, very fascinating take on where he's at. And Daniel continues to run a blog. In fact, his last post was February 15th of 2021. So we will link in the show notes at our website, wellevator.com, not only the link to this incredible book, The Man Who Quit Money, but this Becoming Minimalist website, and also Daniel's blog, which is zerocurrency.blogspot.com. All of that and everything we mentioned in this episode is going to be at our website, wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can click on the show notes, or podcast section rather, and it will take you to the show notes for this episode. His take on life is really fascinating, Whitney, in the sense of he really goes deep not only into what's possible to live in the world without money, because he's been doing it for over two decades. Caveat, though, as his father passed away, he did move back into his parents' house, apparently, to take care of his father and his mother. This was an update from a few years back, and as a result, needed to handle her finances and do things with money to care for his aging parents. I do not think, though, that that is an asterisk in terms of the wisdom and the perspective this incredible human being has to share from living without money. 
And interestingly enough, you know, when you get into Daniel's philosophy, it's basically getting into the fact that people have judged him as crazy and insane by willfully choosing to live without money. And and one quote, you know, that comes up in this interview, the interviewer asks Daniel, he says, I find it interesting that so many of the articles highlighting your story and your work include something similar to this line, quote, Daniel Suello came from a good family and has been to college. He's not mentally ill. He's not an addict. His decision to live without money appears to have been an act completely of free will by a competent adult. So for starters, you're clearly not a crazy man. Is that correct? And Daniel's reply says, a crazy man does not think of himself as crazy. So my opinion on the matter is meaningless. People will have to judge my level of sanity or insanity for themselves. But it would be nice if we lived in a world that considered it crazy to cause harm to ourselves, to others, to animals and the environment, and praise those who do cause such harm. Then we'd have to say we live in a truly crazy civilization. A sane society would consider it crazy to kill sentient living things and destroy food and land and water supplies in order to amass something that nobody can eat or drink or use, like gold, silver, and money. It's crazy to sacrifice reality to the idol of illusion. This brings up an interesting concept, which he stands on in a lot of his work and certainly this book, Wit, which is that money isn't actually real. It's a social agreement that everyone's decided has value and everyone decides has meaning. But intrinsically, the paper and the coin and especially the digits on a screen in our bank statements and our IRAs and our stock investments are only real because we've agreed that they have meaning and value in society. But it doesn't make them intrinsically real in the natural world, is his point. We're the only creatures that will destroy our natural resources, to his point, like the ocean, the environment, the rainforests, each other, animals, sentient creatures, to gain this thing that only exists because we've agreed it has value. This is super interesting because I've been in an environment, I think you talked about Burning Man in a previous episode, and Burning Man is a fascinating social experiment and community, Whitney, for one of the reasons that it goes by bartering and gifting. There is no money exchanged at Burning Man. And when I went to Burning Man, as an aside, talking about whether or not society can function without currency, without money, Burning Man's been going on for decades now. And part of the tenets of that weekend is you cannot exchange money for anything there. And when I was there, I was gifted vegan dinners, five-course dinners. I was gifted vegan sushi. I gave the gift of massage and song and presence. And it's basically whatever you want, you give it freely or you trade someone for it. And as as a small sample size as Burning Man is, even though there's 50, 60, 70,000 people that have been going there, that's a pretty significant sample size. It really begs the question, why do we have money in the world? Well, it's an exchange of value. Well, so is gifting, and so is bartering, and so is exchanging. It really makes me think about, Whitney, sometimes how insane our world is in the sense that you go to work to earn money, to pay for things, to take you to work, to earn money, to pay for things. And it's this cycle of constantly needing to work and earn just to have a roof over our head and a car and food on the table and provide for things. It wasn't always that way. 
You think about the pantheon of human history prior to certainly way prior to the industrial revolution, prior to the agricultural revolution in the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East. There was a time when human beings, homo sapiens, existed in society without currency. So the question becomes, why did we invent currency? Was it to subjugate and enslave others and create power structures? Maybe. Was it to keep track of what was owed between person to person? That also sounds plausible. But Daniel's story, going back to Daniel Suelo, is showing one individual, Burning Man, as a subsegment of society with tens of thousands of people that go every single year, is showing us we also don't need money there. So I'm curious, maybe, I don't know if it'll happen in our lifetimes or if it's even possible moving forward, but it's, I'm bringing this up and I think I wanted to bring this to the table, Whitney, in this episode, because it's clear that our current paradigm of capitalism is based on the subjugation and exploitation of certain social classes, certain races, certain people that have created an extraordinarily wealthy and powerful billionaire class. So to me, it's pretty clear that our current model of capitalism is broken and not working. Why? Because it's destroying people's lives and it's subjugating people to classes where they have to rely on food stamps and they have to rely on welfare and they're scraping by to get by on $7.25 an hour. So do you feel sometimes like all of this is insane? Because there are days when I think like, like this morning, this system is fucking crazy when you think about it. Yeah, but we want TVs and we want tickets and we want cars and like stuff is nice. But think about what we're giving up in terms of our mental health, our psychic energy, the energy we spend working in our lifetimes for stuff. I don't know. Sometimes it just sounds it feels and sounds insane to me. Did you read this book, by the way? Is this the first? Did we talk about this many, many years ago? And, and did you know about Daniel Suelo's story and his work prior to this? I feel like you brought it up. It sounds vaguely familiar. I have not read it. I'm curious. I either sent you a TikTok video that touched upon this today or I thought about sending it to you. Did I? Which one is true? You thought about it. You didn't send anything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we must be on the same wavelength because I saw something around this idea of, I don't think I saved it, but let me see if I did. I often save videos because I think they bring up like really good points that I want to revisit again. I don't think I did. It was along this, this idea of, how we kind of create a lot of our own misery in that it actually, you know who it might've been the more I think about this, I feel like it was some random person and maybe there were multiple videos I saw, but I definitely saw a video from Gary Vaynerchuk saying that so many people will buy cars. He was specifically talking about BMWs as an example. And this is why I thought of you, Jason, he was on stage. Somebody might've asked him a question and he was like asking this person in the audience, why did you buy this car? And I think the guy said, well, I just like the brand. I like BMW cars. And Gary said, okay, well, if that's true, then that's likely a good reason. But if you're buying the car, like the majority of people do to impress somebody else, you're spending way more money than you need to. And he gave the example of like, let's say four to $500 a month for a nice car like that versus a much less expensive car that might run more like $100 a month. 
So you're spending four to five times the amount of money that you really need to if you're just using it for transportation just to impress people. And thus that involves you needing to work more and stress out more and to hustle and to get you caught up in all these cycles. And I reflected on that given that I purchased an expensive car, which is way more than four or $500 a month and definitely a big financial stretch for me. And I was sitting there trying to humble myself and like really be honest. Why did I buy that car? And it's interesting because there are a lot of layers and sometimes it's really hard to see. I want to believe in what my current state of belief is that I mainly, if not entirely, purchased the Tesla because I believe in the company's initiatives for environmental friendliness. I'm also somebody who really likes technology for the most part, as long as it doesn't disrupt my mental health. I'm somebody who loves Apple. And since Apple doesn't currently have an electric car, Tesla is kind of the next best thing, right? It's similar to when I purchase Apple products. Do I purchase them to like fit in and be cool? No, like I've been buying Apple products for many years because they serve a creative function and they fit the ethos that I have. And, and I think Tesla is very similar to Apple in that sense where it's something different. It's something innovative. They're usually amongst the first to do it. I love companies like that. And yeah, it's a luxury car, but I have never owned a luxury car before. I've never really been attracted to luxury cars aside from admiring them, right? So I want to believe that I purchased the car because it fits my personality and my outlook on the world. And it fits into my desire to make purchases that are better or going in the right direction for the environment. Now, you, we're not going to go off on a tangent because electric cars are not perfect. And I'm aware of this. There's environmental impacts for sure. But anyways, I also had to examine, Jason, like thinking about how for sure there's something that feels nice about having a nice car. And I've talked about, about this throughout episodes. Like, it does feel good. Like, you do feel like, not better than other people, but like you feel a sense of specialness. And brands like Tesla and Apple, like they do have this kind of more elite vibe to them. Like, ooh, look at the headphones I'm wearing. I'm only going to be wearing these headphones if I have enough money to buy these headphones. I mean, I, it's funny enough, I'm literally pointing to my headphones, which are Apple's expensive AirPod Max. That's not why I bought them. I didn't buy them to look cool and to brag. But I do know that if people see these headphones, they know that they're expensive. And so I won't lie and say that there isn't some of that element there. Just like I know that when people see my car, they may think something about me and my ability to acquire that asset, right? But going back to the headphones, I actually, I completely forgot I was wearing these headphones, Jason. I was thinking about just the standard earbuds, like the AirPods. I remember when when the original AirPods came out, the little ones that fit into your ear, that was like a big deal. If you had AirPods, like people knew that you had some extra money to spend. But I also recently saw a video on the same note. This is bringing up a lot for me, Jason. So... I'm flowing with this idea. I saw a video within the past 24 hours on TikTok of a girl sharing an experience she had while she was working at Starbucks. She was training a new employee and the employee noticed that this girl had a $1,000 Gucci bag. 
And she's like, oh, like, look at your Gucci bag. Like, how much was that? And the girl's like, oh, it's about $1,000. And the, the new hire said, well, who are you to buy an $1,000 bag? Like, is that financially responsible of you? You work at Starbucks. And the girl said, hey, listen, I could work at McDonald's if I wanted to because I know how to save my money. And I've been saving up for this bag for a long time. And it's a big treat for myself. So just because I have a nice bag doesn't mean that I'm irresponsible. And it also doesn't necessarily mean that I have a ton of money. And that's basically how I feel. That's the standpoint I'm at in my life. Like people do make assumptions sometimes about things like my car and they might think that I have more money. I'm not trying to trick anyone. Like I'm completely transparent. I'm not personally extremely comfortable sharing exactly how much money I make or have at this moment. But it's probably not as much as others may think. And how do I, because I'm structuring my life to make that work. I have the privilege to create that structure. Yes. I have the privilege to have low expenses. Yes. But that doesn't mean that I have like all this extra money and I'm just like throwing that money around. So I think there are different levels to all of this, Jason. And money is complicated in that it's not always what it seems, And we're motivated by multiple things in different levels when we make our purchases. To your point about perception, right? I don't think I ever told you this. Maybe I did. I forget what I say sometimes. So if I'm reiterating myself, forgive me. I can think of three separate instances where acquaintances of ours, not friends, but acquaintances, found out that you had bought a Tesla and their reaction to me was a mixture of like shock and envy. Like, how did Whitney get a Tesla? Whitney got a Tesla. I can think of three specific instances where people reacted in a similar fashion to my face. And I was like, what do you mean? How? Like, she bought it like anybody else buys anything. Like, I didn't even know how to respond to that because I'm not I'm not privy to your financial world or what you leverage. I, you know, it's just funny how like people would ask me how you did it. And I'm like, I ask her, why are you asking me? It's not, it's not my life. But the emotional reaction to it is the interesting part, Whitney, that the look on the face and the tone of their voice and the way that they replied to it indicated to me that you were somehow more successful, more financially prosperous or higher up on the social strata than they had surmised previously about you. Right. And, and it's just by you buying that one thing in your life, not looking at your watch or your headphones or your clothes, like just the car. They're like, how did Whitney do that? And it's fascinating people's reaction and judgments around the material things we have and what they perceive that means about us financially. Absolutely. And and it brings up a lot of different things, you know. Because this has come up, it, it's an ongoing thing that I've experienced with having that car. And it's fascinating to me on a number of levels because, A, three years after I bought it, there are a lot of people that have that same car, just like you predicted, Jason. Like the Model 3 is more and more common, especially in cities like Los Angeles. Not as much around the country when I've traveled. It's a little bit more rare when I'm driving around to see it. But they're they're a ton and I see it growing. But still, it's fascinating to me how people do have that reaction. And it kind of feels like this old reaction, right? But 
I also know based on how much I pay for that car and how much people pay for other cars and how people that I know for a fact make more money than I do still feel like buying a Tesla would be a big stretch for them. And that's part of the fascination here and the lesson is that it money is a complicated thing. And it's not just about how much you make. It's also about how much you spend. And it's also about how good you are at making decisions about your money, saving your money. There's so many factors financially. And I remember before I got the car, really trying to figure out the math in my head, like, how could I make this? I really wanted the car. Like It was something that I just like, was determined to figure out. It wasn't like this knee-jerk reaction. I spent months and months. I, I remember specifically in January 2018, having a conversation with somebody and, and figuring out the math. And I was like, that's a lot of money. But I'll just also disclose, like at that time, I was in a state of a little bit more abundance than usual, which was perfect timing because doing the down payment, doing my first few payments, getting me into the flow of that car and that expense was more accessible than normal. And I think a lot of people can get that chance at time, maybe not a lot, but enough people will have an experience in their life where unexpected money comes in, whether it's a new job that pays better, a raise that they weren't expecting, a bonus, inheritance, winning the lottery. Like there's a lot of things like that that can shift in our lives. And that's another element of finances that I I think are part of this conversation, Jason, is as I grow up, (laughs) as I get older, I recognize that money is not nearly as stable as I thought it might be. And I don't know if that's a general, general, generation thing. I don't know why I can't say that word. Generizational thing. <laughs> generational. Generational. Thank you. you. Were th- I think you were trying to say generalization and generational. Sure. And yeah. So you want right. to make yeah, something <laughs> a like generalization that. about generational thinking. <laughs> well, I'm fascinated by money and I'm there's so much to learn when it comes to money, too. And I do think part of it is purposefully confusing because money is tied into power. So unless you spend a lot of time focused on understanding money, it is likely that you will be confused. I mean, earlier today, Jason, I was going through my transactions. It's something I I try to do a few times a week. I use the tool mint.com. They're not a sponsor, but I, I... I will gladly plug them. Uh, Maybe one day they will be a sponsor, right? Mint.com, it's owned by Intuit. And I've been using them for a really long time. And I love them. I love just how organizing it and it makes everything very simple. So if the listener is looking for a tool, it's free. You get ads on there. I think that's how they make it. And I'm sure they're collecting data as well, which you you have to figure out if you're okay with that. But I really enjoy it and it makes it easy for me to keep track of my income and my spending. It also allows me to create goals for myself. So right now I'm on a mission to pay off my credit card debt by the end of the year. And so I go on there and I check my credit score. I check my progress. I plan out my transactions. I'm, I'm very intentional. It makes me feel really safe when I can project. So I know approximately what I'll be spending and how much I'll be making for the next three to four months. And I'm also doing that to help support myself with this goal of paying off my credit card debt. 
anyways, I was on there and one thing I noticed, Jason, is I had accrued some credit card points on one of my cards that I'm trying to pay off. And I got really stuck in this moment of ignorance, wondering, like, would it be better for me to redeem that for cash or would it be better for me to save up the points for some future like redemption? And I sat there for a moment thinking, all right, what are my current goals? My, my big goal is to pay off my debt, right? My goals are not to like buy new things and go traveling and all that stuff. We talked about this in an episode with Owen Beanie or Benny. I forget how to pronounce his last name. We'll link to that episode. It's a great one if you're curious about credit cards and points. And he was really helpful, but I still feel ignorant. And so there was this moment of me like sitting there thinking, gosh, like this is so confusing. And is this purposefully confusing to the credit cards kind of know how to manipulate us to be confused. And I don't know, is it malicious or is it just part of the system? Is it part of power? Is it like, hey, if we if we make things a little harder to understand, maybe we can keep more of our money. I'm guessing that's the way it works. And I've become more and more passionate about understanding money. Understand, We've talked lately about how you and I are both passionate about our credit scores and like, I want to learn more, but it's taking many years. We both have read Tony Robbins' book about money, and it's like this thick book. And I forgot most of the information that I learned in that, and I feel like I need to go back. And it's overwhelming. That's how I felt. Not only was it a lot to read, but it was overwhelming, like understanding investments and all of this stuff. So I've actually been on a mission, Jason, just as a side note to not only educate myself, but others. So if you, the listener, are curious, I'll give a teaser that I've been developing a a group support system to not give advice, but to share resources that are educational and answer each other's questions about things like, you know, paying off debt and building your credit. But we have to be careful not to like become financial advisors. Side note and a teaser, because maybe that's something I'll talk about in a future episode. So yeah, Jason, my point being is like, I think money is confusing, but it's not always what it seems. So for something like the Tesla, to someone else, they might have this idea of what it means to have a car like that. But I'll be the first to admit that it's not reflective of me having a ton of money or being as successful as they may think, right? But then again, This conversation is also about how it's all relative. So I might not feel super successful or financially savvy or financially well off, but it's all relative to whoever I'm with. And they need to know too. And this is another thing that I'm really passionate about is just because I drive that car doesn't mean I have it all figured out. Not that anyone might think that, but like, it's not that simple because I've, I've made sacrifices in my life to make financial room for that. And I'm also living minimally versus somebody else. Like you and I have talked about this, Jason, like somebody else with a lot of debt. Debt is might be their priority and thus they could not prioritize a purchase like that. I prioritize getting that car. I, I could have absolutely paid off my debt a hell of a lot faster had I not had that car right now, you know? So for every big purchase and financial decision, there's generally speaking some sort of compromise you make, whether it's your time, whether it's other purchases. Like 
I think that's a really important part of this conversation, Jason. Like when you talk about a moneyless world, most people are in their own relationship with money and moneyless is going to create some sort of a shift. And we're not at a time, like you said, are in Burning Man, where you can live that style with trade and bartering and all that stuff all the time. That's not how we're set up. So if you want to be moneyless, the compromise is that you will probably not be able to participate in the way the world is currently functioning. And just like any big change, I don't know in our lifetime if we would see a shift like that unless something really drastic changed and there was some seismic shift in which we were all operating. Well, it's really the association, though, that we have, isn't it? I mean, it it's not the numbers on the screens or the pieces of paper in our wallets or purses. I go back to it's it's what it represents. What is your house or your zip code represent? What does the Gucci bag represent for you? You, know, you talked about that woman who said, I, I did it to treat myself or why we choose, you know, a certain car or item over another. I mean, I mean, I think this really comes back to the idea of self-identification and what this means about me. What do I think this thing, this bank statement, this investment means about me? I mean, certainly there's security, there's survival, there's power, there's dominance. There's a lot of other emotional factors, but I think really what it comes down to, I think money is a reflection and a teacher of how we perceive ourselves in the world and in society. I think also, Whitney, sometimes when I get existential, I think about the idea of ownership, you know, and that's the way that we use language to describe that's my house, that's my car, that's my clothes, that's my guitar, that's my boyfriend, that's my cat. Well, when we think about it, my opinion, my perspective on all this is, I think that that language is a bit misleading because it implies ownership, it implies possession, it implies this thing is mine. And therefore, because I have it, it says something about me. But the reality is, we know we're going to die. We're all going to die unless by the end of our lifetime, we upload our consciousness into some 500 terabyte drive and we become avatars. But for the most part, we're going to die. Okay. What does that mean? House ain't going with you. The car ain't going with you. Your kids aren't going with you. Your investments aren't going with you. Yes, we could talk about generational wealth, and I understand the idea that some people want to build enough wealth to share it with their children, their grandchildren, however many generations. But the reality is, I think, rather than owners of things, I believe we are temporary caretakers. To me, that's more accurate language. Now, we're not going to probably use that because it sounds clunky. Is that your car? I'm the temporary caretaker of this Tesla. Like it's, it just doesn't sound colloquially, but I do believe that that language is more accurate in terms of our existence. We don't own anything, right? Like even, even if you own your house and your house is paid off, okay, and you live in a urban or suburban environment, newsflash, you don't own the land it's on. The city or the township owns the land. What's well, my house? Mm, not really. Because the municipality owns the land you're on, unless you're way, way, way out in, you know, a rural area and you actually purchase that land and you put up a tiny house or a shack. Sure. But for all intents and purposes, you don't actually own that thing as much as you think you do. Also, when you have a car, 
you may, quote, own the car, but the privilege of operating it on the road in the state you're given, what do you do? You pay a registration fee, you pay for a driver's license, and you pay insurance, okay? So to me, it goes back to my philosophy, which is we don't fully own anything. We are the temporary caretakers and stewards of said thing until we sell it or it's destroyed or we die. So the idea of owning things, again, animals, people, houses, cars, I think it's fallacious from a language perspective. I don't think it's accurate. And also, I think when I think about being the temporary caretaker of something, Whitney, materially speaking, it takes a lot of the pressure off. Like when I think about the, I, I have, I own this thing. It doesn't mean we don't want to be conscientious about caring for the things in our life. I'm a personally a big fan. This is probably how I was raised of the better care you take of your material things, the longer they last and you don't have to constantly buy them, putting yourself in perpetual debt and having to work your ass off for new shit all the time. This is coming from a guy in my twenties who would flip cars like every year. I mean, I had so many cars in my twenties. I wish I hadn't done that in some ways because I think I would have saved a lot of money by not constantly flipping cars. But my point is this. I think ownership is a fallacious concept. And I think the language that we use around this really goes back to ego and the way that we look at ourselves, right? It's my Mercedes. It's my Tesla. It's my Bugatti. Mm. You have it for a period of time. Who knows how long that's going to be? But is it actually yours? I would debate people on that. I would debate people on that. How do you feel about that language of ownership? Because I feel like it, it is sticky, Whitney, and I don't feel like it's fully accurate. How do you feel about using that terminology when you say that's mine or I own that thing? I'm in alignment with you. And when I think about it, when I'm intentional about those words, they don't sit right because I associate that with dominance. And I think there's a lot of unpleasant associations with ownership. And I energetically, if it's our responsibility to care for something, that word caretaker is really nice. But again, it it's all about the context and it's very relative because to your point, Jason, like I don't need to position myself as like the conscious language queen all the time. You know, <laughs> like I'm okay with occasionally using the word pet, even though I prefer companion animal, which we talked about in an episode with Lindsay Rubin, who used to work at V-Dog. It's a lovely episode in which we talk about the ethics of animals in terms of pets and companions. And I think that we've just conditioned ourselves as a society to use certain terms. But when we look at the roots of a lot of them, they may not be what we would like them the meaning might be different than what we intend, but unless we're very intentional and aware, then we may just throw it out there and I'm not perfect in, in my speech. But in these moments where I pause to think about it, Jason, absolutely. I think, you know, it, it reminds me of I'm looking at my desk. I'm looking around like the things that I quote own, things that I possess. And one thing that my eyes landed on was my water bottle. I love this water bottle. Another shout out. This is called the hydrate. And I dropped it recently. It makes me a little sad. It got a little busted yesterday, but it still works great. And it lights up. It keeps me, keeps track of water. We talked about this actually on another episode with Sid. And we were talking about all this cool technology that we use. Anyways, I look at this water bottle and I think, do I own this? 
technically, yes, it was gifted to me, first of all. So somebody energetically purchased it, sent it to me for, it was a holiday gift, and I'm using it. It's possible, in fact, it's inevitable that one day I will not have this. One day it'll break. One day I'll find another bottle that I prefer over it. One day I may decide to gift it to somebody else. Perhaps multiple things are true at the same time. And I'll move on. And I bring this up because one thing I'm challenged with, and I know a lot of people are challenged with, especially this ties into money too, Jason, it's like, can be so hard to let go of things and we can get caught up. I get caught up actually on both sides. I get caught up in purchases. Right before we started recording, Jason and I were talking about these dog ramps from this company called Alpha Pal or Alpha Paw. And they help dogs, especially elderly dogs or, or dogs with uh, physical sensitivities or challenges. They help them get onto couches and beds. And and I've been using ramps. Jason's been using ramps for a while. And we're both thinking, or Jason already made the decision to get the ramp for himself. And I'm thinking about it. And part of the reason I'm still thinking about it, Jason, is because I have a hard time p- making purchases. I usually hesitate. I bought a new pair of yoga pants today that I've been eyeing for weeks. And I still hesitated. And I still have this moment of like, hmm, did I make the right decision? Because it's scary for me. Speaking of finances, like funny enough, and this is actually an important point, paying for my car every month is a huge expense, but I do it easily because I'm used to it. But whenever I buy something that I'm not used to buying, I will pause and I will feel uncomfortable. I will consider the value of it in my life. And I actually think that's very important. I will also, going back to this bottle and the reason I brought this up, hesitate to get rid of things. And it's tough for me sometimes to recycle, donate, sell, pass on things that I currently, quote, own or possess because I wonder in my head, am I ready to let go of it? Am I ready to pass it on? Am I done with it? What if I need it again? I am afraid in both instances. I'm afraid of having too much sometimes and I'm afraid of not having enough. And that's an important element of this is it's like, I think that for me comes down to self-trust. And I've noticed the more that I get in the, the habit and the flow, it becomes easier. Just like my Tesla became easier to pay for. I got in the flow of it. I'm used to it. I value it. It's an easier decision. But oddly enough, sometimes making a $100 or, or $50 purchase can be really challenging for me. And sometimes giving away something that might seem simple to someone else, like like a water bottle could be so tough or breaking it. Like I'm terrified when this thing fell to the ground the other day, I was like, oh no, I can't break it because what if I have to buy another one and I don't want to do that, you know? And that's part of this whole conversation, don't you think? Yeah. Our relationships to material things is fascinating. It's fascinating because, again, we go back to we are emotional creatures. We'd, we'd love to believe we're rational. We really would. But at the core, if you look at why we purchase things, and I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, too, we tend to justify buying a lot of things with logic and rationale. But if we're really honest, emotions play a much bigger role than logic and rationality in most of our purchasing decisions. That being said talking about material things, Whitney, because you sparked up a couple interesting things. And and there's actually a chunk that I want to read from going back to Daniel Suelo, the man who quit money, 
talking about language and where the language around money and finances comes from. But before I get to that, I actually gave away a knife. I pride myself. This is so funny to say. I pr- like who who even gives a shit? I, pr- I pride myself because people are assessing this. No one's assessing this. My knife collection. No one's ever like gone <laughs> into my kitchen and been like, that's a pretty stellar knife collection, Robel. Said no one ever. However, I do like nice knives. It makes cooking easier, prepping easier. I like the craftsmanship of certain knives. There was a knife that I had in my drawer that I was gifted Whitney when I did the Pebble Beach Food and Wine Festival. I was the first vegan chef ever to do it in 2013. It was a huge honor in many, many, many ways. And one of the gifts that I received from the festival was this really beautiful cleaver, right? Gorgeous, beautiful wood handle, like pack of wood handle, really beautiful knife. Here's the thing. 2013 at the time this recording was, good God, eight years ago. I never used that cleaver once sitting in my drawer and looking at it. And I'm like, why am I keeping this knife? I know why I'm keeping this knife, because it's some sort of physical evidence of the success of the past. Look what I did, everyone. I've got this embossed, engraved cleaver from Pebble Beach Food and Wine because I was the first vegan chef ever. Look, I'm worthy of love. I did it. I did something no one else did. Ha ha. Never use the knife. So you know what I did? I acknowledged that I was keeping it for egoic reasons, for somehow like, look what I've done. And I gave it away. And it felt really good to give it away because I gave it to my girlfriend, Laura's mother, who's a great chef and a great cook. Cook, technically. Chef is someone who goes to culinary school. She's a great cook. And she was overjoyed. I gave her this gorgeous cleaver, right? Well, I never used it. It was totally like one of those things like, you know, like, I don't know. I didn't need it, okay? It was just hanging around, taking up space. It was not a useful material object in my life other than egoic reasons. The other thing I wanted to mention, and you talked about like keeping things and and being in this sort of limbo state between being afraid of having too much and being afraid of having not enough. My grandfather, Walter, bless him, was what you would consider respectfully a pack rat. And in the basement of my grandparents' house, You could go down there and you could find things that would blow your mind. You know, grandpa was the kind of guy that if you needed, you know, a set of lug nuts for like a 79 Chrysler, he'd be like, yeah, got those in the basement. Like, how do you have those, grandpa? Because he would just keep everything. Now, part of that is the fact that when he was a young man, he went through the Great Depression, right? And so there's a certain, I think, trauma has a way for us humans of creating behavioral patterns to keep ourselves safe and protected. And I I would be willing to venture, I can't ask him because he passed, but that part of my grandfather's motivation for keeping everything was having lived and struggled through and survived the depression was like, I'm never going to allow that to happen again. I'm going to keep everything, make sure my family's safe, I'm safe, I'm keeping all the shit. So everything's going in the garage and everything's going in the basement. Right. So we also I think when we're talking about materialism, Whitney, whether that's minimalism or the opposite of minimalism, which would be, I don't know, hoarding ultra maximalism, that is our motivations for doing these things coming from a place of trauma. Now, I can say for me, if we want to go a a layer deeper, right, that my desire to have stuff at times 
has been going back to the BMW conversation with Gary V. Like, I want to show everyone I'm worthy of love and praise and adoration. Look at my stuff, everyone. That's coming from trauma. That's coming from childhood of you're not good enough. Well, fuck everyone. I'm going to show everyone I'm good enough because I'm going to buy the Ferrari and I'm going to buy the big house and I'm going to buy the Rolex and I'm going to buy, right? I'm not saying that purchasing these things are bad, but we have to ask ourselves, is my desire to have this stuff coming from trauma to keep myself safe, to feel worthy, to feel loved? And I think in a lot of cases, if people were really honest and aware, the answer would be yes. However, the other side of it, minimalism, right? With I think one of the reasons I want to live a simpler life and get out of Los Angeles and lower my expenses is because I feel trauma around being burnt out, hustling constantly to afford living in Los Angeles because it's fucking brutally expensive to live here. Some people might not feel like it's not that expensive for where I'm at in my life. It feels brutally expensive to live here. I don't want it anymore. So, yeah, if I were to be honest, like part of my desire to leave is the trauma around feeling burnt the fuck out being here and not wanting to work as hard. I don't want to work here. You know what? I don't like working. I don't. I'm going to say it publicly for I don't like working. Well, he's so pri- no, not pri- I don't like it. Now, when I say that, when I'm working on something that it's interesting, I'm going on a massive tangent here and I'm going to hand the baton back. But, you know, when I think about things that I'm willing to do for no money, it's because I deeply love them. I deeply love working on music. I deeply love caring for my animals. I deeply love spending time with my friends. I deeply love writing and reading. I've done those things for money, sometimes for money, yes, but mostly not, right? I think for me, it's like, I want to work less and not be grinding so hard just to survive and provide these material things in my life. And why is that? Because work's exhausting. It's fucking exhausting, okay? For me, it is. Some people are like, I love work. I'm not a workaholic. I want to work less. I'm going to go on record and say, I want to work less. And living in a place that has a much lower cost of living will allow me to work less. So this all goes to say, I think it's important to examine our motivations of why we want money, what money means to us, what things mean to us, and is there trauma involved? I really think it's it, it's a critically important question of how are our wounds influencing these decisions. Now, I wanted to say one thing because I mentioned going back to Daniel Suelo and the etymology of some of these words that we use around money that we don't even know about. And this is absolutely fascinating. We'll link to, again to our website, wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, his blog, which is zerocurrency.blogspot.com. And he had this recent post from this year where he talks about the etymology and the conception of money and the etymology of our words. He says, for example, the word pecuniary and the word fee and feudal and fiefdom all come from the same root, which is pecu, which means cattle. Also, the word capitalism comes from cattle. Capital means head, kaput. Cattle comes from that same root, kaput. You count heads of cattle. And capitalism means the principle for interest. You even look at the words for stock, like stock market, stock broker. This comes from live stock, also going back to cattle. It's also interesting to look at the Spanish word for cattle. That's ganado. Ganado means wages for something gained. 
And the word ganar, the etymology of the word ganalo, ganado rather, literally means to earn wages. Now, it gets really fascinating when we go back to deeper cultures and the word for money in Greek, the ancient Greek language. The Greek word for money is nomisma. The root of nomisma is nomos. Nomos means law, as in the law of Moses or the law of the land. Now, in the root of nomos is nemo, which means in Greek to parcel out, specifically food or grazing to animals. So here we see at the root of money is words that have the etymology in agriculture, cattle, ownership of animals, grazing, and agriculture. So you can see the evolution of money came from this idea of cattle, counting cattle, raising animals in Indo-European languages. But in English, you can also see it in Semitic languages like Hebrew, right? And I'm almost done with this because this can go on and on. It's a long blog post. But if you look at the word for cattle in Hebrew, I'm going to probably butcher this. It's mikne. And the root word of mikne is kwana. Kwana means to purchase or to own. And also in the Hebrew words for jealousy come from kana jealousy and own and possession. And mikne means both cattle and possessions. So mikne means both money and cattle simultaneously. So he's he's talking about this, Whitney, because we're talking about the beginnings of organized human civilizations and why money and civilization and agriculture and ownership are inextricably linked because they're based on the same principle and the same roots of language. And this is the principle of money. It's a concept of ownership and power and having things. And so civilization, from its very beginning, the organized civilization we know now, is about owning living beings, whether that's humans or animals, enslaving things. We call it domestication. That's the euphemism we use, domestication. But domestication is a euphemism for slavery and ownership. They mean the same thing. You own another creature, you own another being, you exploit another creature, you exploit another being, and you use that being to earn you money and status and power. That's where the word usury comes from. It comes from using, exploiting others. Holy shit. Think about that goes deep, Whitney, to the deepest roots of our language. And if you do think about how civilization was built, it was built on the backs of humans. It was built on the backs of animals. It was built on ownership and exploitation and slavery. So when we go now to the rallying cries against Richard Branson and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and fuck you, how can you go to space when there are billions of people starving? Well, they, much like the feudal lords before them, built their empires on exploitation. Regardless of what you think about them as people, we need to be honest about it. Regardless of the good they're doing, which they are doing some good, they built it on exploiting others. And I will venture to say that I think the only way to get to that level of wealth and power is through the exploitation and ownership of others. If you want to learn more, this article is incredible and it's deep and it goes into community, capitalism, profit, resources. And he says, in conclusion, at the end of this blog post, we believe that we can trade nothings for something. Money creates the illusion that there are unlimited resources because money itself is an unlimited so-called resource, but it's actually nothing. But the goods and services that we trade for money are limited resources. That's what's so insidious about money. The very idea of money, the concept and agreement of money separates the producer from the consumer so that we are wholly unaware of the labor the pain and the effort of how our goods and services are produced and get to us. 
The goods that we use are produced in overseas sweatshops and exploited child labor. They're produced by environmental destruction, say in the Congo, by Congolese children digging up minerals day in and day out in slave labor so that we can have our computers, our televisions, and our cell phones. This is the hard thing, right? Because if we choose to live in society with, and we choose to have computers, cell phones, electric cars, even our food supply, we know that there's a certain amount of suffering that's baked into those things. As much as we try, right? As much as we try to make a difference, I know you feel this way, I feel this way. As much as I try to support conscious businesses and conscious companies, I still know that there might be less suffering, but there's still suffering in the system the way that we have it right now. And that to me is one of the hardest things that I struggle with all the time with in trying to make the quote best decisions. And when I say best, I mean most conscious, most compassionate decisions. Even in a lot of those conscious or compassionate decisions, I know that there's still suffering involved and it breaks my heart. It does. So this is an extremely complicated issue. I know we are just, you know, grazing the surface another cattle reference there we're just grazing the surface and to your point i don't know if we will exist in a framework of society that is bartering and trading in our lifetime maybe if we have complete societal collapse maybe if climate change decimates a large portion of the world we will go back to it but for now i don't think people want to give up their power i don't think people want to give up their money i don't think people want to give up their things although we might have a more equitable, balanced, fair, and loving world if we did. It's up for debate. That being said, we will link to all of the resources we mentioned today, including The Man Who Quit Money, the wonderful book that profiles Daniel Suelo. We'll go to his interview. We'll go to his incredible blog. If you want to go into the etymology of capitalism and money, it's fascinating. And it's way more than we can cover in one very simple and humble podcast episode. But for you, dear listener, we want to hear from you. How do you feel about money and the role that it plays in our ego, in our lives, in our world, the benefits, the deleterious aspects, the ways it might be damaging us mentally, socially? We'd love to hear your perspectives. We always do. So if you want to send us an email, our email is hello at wellevator.com. That is also our website. You can always shoot us a direct message on any of the social media platforms. And if you dig what we are getting into here, on this might get uncomfortable you can support us on patreon oh man that requires money though oh boy well yeah it does require money to run a podcast it requires money to keep the roof over our head to keep the editing going to keep us moving in the right direction so if this does resonate with you we have some wonderful wonderful patrons who are supporting us every month to keep this podcast going we do appreciate the financial resources and the energetic support the wonderful emails the wonderful messages so if that compels you to support us, we will put that Patreon link in the show notes as well. It is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And we have amazing perks. We think so, at least. We started our, our second podcast, This Hits the Spot, which you can actually listen to for free if money is, you know, not your... If supporting us financially is not a priority for you financially, we obviously understand. You can listen to This Hits the Spot by signing up for our newsletter, which is a really good energetic exchange for us because then we get to keep in touch with you and also, you know, just keep you posted on anything that we're working on. If you do want to spend $2 or more a month, you can get This Hits the Spot 
and the perks of it, which is video versions and you can have requests and we're adding in as much as we possibly can. We've thought about doing merchandise, although there's a lot to think about, you know, with this conversation, Jason, like we don't want to be, what's the term? Be hypocrites? Not walk, hypocrites. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. So it's interesting with things like Patreon because energetically we want to give back even more than we currently do. If this is enough for you supporting the show and just knowing that you're supporting us, awesome. But if you'd like something more, we're always brainstorming. And we think this hits the spot is actually a really lovely thing because if you like podcasts, now you get two. So we're working on it. We're trying to think of of things that are energetically rewarding to you as a thank you because we do really appreciate it. And ultimately connecting with you is one of the greatest gifts of all. So you, you get a little extra priority connection with us. And a shout out to one of our latest patrons, Rye, who has been very generous. That was so wonderful to receive energetically. And just knowing that even more of our expenses are covered is awesome truly awesome. So thank you, Rye. Thank you to our other Patreon supporters. Thank you to our newsletter subscribers. And thank you to the listener. Simply listening to the show makes a massive difference in our lives. You do not go unrecognized. We just don't always know who you are. So if you want to reach out to us and tell us more about who you are and what resonated with you, as Jason said, that would be so awesome because it creates a deeper bond for us. And I guess that's it. Well, yeah. Thanks for listening. We have episodes every Monday, Wednesday, Friday here on the podcast. And again, if you have any requests for subjects, we always love to receive those ideas. If there's any subject matters you want us to research and dive deeper into, financial, biological, scientific, religious, spiritual, existential, if you've been with us for any length of time, we're very tangential and broad with our subject matter because that's the human experience. So Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting in all of the ways that you do. And we'll be back with another episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable very soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 